Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is highlights from TPM 2023 with my friend Peter Tershwell. The TPM conference is the premier conference for international container shipping. That was held February 26th to March 1st out in Long Beach, California. Guys, our supply chains are built on these containers, and this is the premier event. It's held every year out in Long Beach. The event is hosted by the fine folks over at Journal of Commerce, JOC, which is the oldest, most respected name in the logistics and supply chain space. It's now owned by S&P, another well-respected name. Spoke to Peter Churchwell, who's been leading JOC for many, many years, and also still writing for JOC. He's extremely knowledgeable. He's been on my podcast before. He's a fantastic guest. He really has a sense for where the market is going. He also has a sense just for what the leaders in the space are doing because he talks to them, he writes about them, and he meets them every year out at TPM. But before we get to the podcast, I want to tell you about my friends at Tusk Logistics. That's T-U-S-K logistics.com. If you're a small parcel shipper, you can save 40% with Tusk. And the way you can save 40% is Tusk has a great technology and they've connected a whole bunch of regional small parcel carriers. These are carriers that have been in business for a long time and they're excellent service, better than the big guys in their region. But you could never use them because they were just regional. Tusk has connected these guys into a national network. You can save 40% and have better service. And in addition, you get Tusk's technology, which is top-notch. Plus, you get Tusk, uh, their customer support. Overall, you can't lose. You get better service than you're going to get from the big guys. And you get better technology than you get from the big guys. And the service, the delivery time is better than the big guys. 40% savings. Do it. TuskLogistics.com. And right at the top, it says, get started. Click on that button and get started and save 40%. So how's it going, Peter? Great, Joe. How are you today? Pleasure to be with you. Doing great, doing great. I'm excited to talk to you about it because I did not go to TPM 2023, and I know not everybody could get there. I want to hear the highlights of it. So first off, Peter, what is TPM? Where do you work? What is your job title over there? And where are you located today? So I'm here in my home in Brooklyn. My title is I'm vice president in charge of the Journal of Commerce business at S&P Global Market Intelligence. And so I'm responsible for the Journal of Commerce, which includes TPM. Journal of Commerce at its core is a team of specialized business journalists covering end-to-end international logistics and all associated issues, challenges, disruptions, strategies, technology, everything really around that. And out of our journalism emerges a program, our program at TPM is journalistically led and TPM is an event that has been now in existence for 23 years. It's really focused on essentially the ocean container supply chain. It's increasingly a global event that attracts several hundred of the big retailers, manufacturers, logistics teams at most, I would say, of the major companies that are whose goods are, are moved on the big container ships that are operating out there. So what does TPM stand for and when was the conference and where was it? Well, it used to stand for Trans-Pacific Maritime. So that's where TPM came from, but it 
no longer stands for that. It's just a name now. And the reason is that increasingly TPM is a global event. There's global decision makers there on, from the carrier, the ocean carriers, from the freight forwarders, from the, the shippers or, or BCOs, and, and the conversations are increasingly global that are taking place at TPM. So we kind of dropped Trans-Pacific Maritime because it really is, not, is, is a little bit limiting in terms of the actual scope and activity of, of the conference. And that, that was held in Los Angeles, Long Beach? So it's been held on Long Beach for many years, and it was held from February 26th through March 1 of this year, so about, about three weeks ago now. So you're just recovering, huh? <laughs> Yeah, kind of. It, it, t- it takes a little bit of time to kind of get your bearings. After that, it's a bit of an overwhelming experience, but it went really well. We're all very happy with how the event went this year. So before we hit record, we were talking about conferences in general, and I was like, "Ooh, California in February and March." Oh, so for those of us who are in the Northeast or the Midwest, like me, California in February and March sounds very attractive. So does Ben Gordon's conference down in Florida at the Breakers and Manifest in Vegas. All those sound really, really attractive if you're in our weather. Well, except for the fact that this year, so nine years out of 10, we usually get fantastic weather in Southern California for TPM. That was not the case this year where it was raining, it was cold, oh. it was windy. The mountains around the LA basin were getting a snowstorm for the first time in something like 30 years. So it was a, a little bit of unusual weather that we had. That's right. My daughter lives in Portland and she was in LA for business. And she says, I got to leave early to go home back to Portland. I go, why is that? She said, weather, the snow. I was like, where you at? <laughs> <laughs> he goes, yeah, you don't expect to hear that. <laughs> it was it was quite a storm. Well, it's kind of emblematic of California, which has just gotten, you know, and, and all of the West Coast, which has just gotten, you know, you know, pummeled with weather this winter. Yeah, that's all right. I don't mind. I'm in Detroit. We always get that. I want the rest of the world to suffer a little bit. Let's switch gears. So I know you were on my podcast once before and we talked about JOC. Journal of Commerce has got a long, illustrious history. Give us just the back of the napkin um, perspective of what JOC has been over time and what it is today. Well, I mean, it was the daily shipping newspaper of New York City. It had been founded in the 1820s. So it goes back really- It's got to be one of the oldest newspapers. It was founded by Samuel Morse, the inventor of the telegraph, who was also kind of a polymath and a portraitist and famous artist in his time. I don't know what those all are, but that sounds important. <laughs> Yeah, he was he was quite quite an interesting guy, and and actually it's got a amazing history. Had a, uh, a an epic freedom of the press clash with President Lincoln during the, during the Civil War. One of the journalists broke the story of the Arab oil embargo in the early 1970s. What happened was that it couldn't be economically published as a print daily anymore as of the year 2000. So that actually led directly to the formation of TPM because myself and a number of my colleagues at the time, few of whom are still with us today, we were asking ourselves, how is it that we can remain relevant in our market? How can we create additional revenue to replace the revenue that was lost from the newspaper? Uh, Because we just want to write about this industry. That's really what we're interested in doing really for our entire careers. We don't want to be on the unemployment line. don't want to have to go do something else. And so basically said, well, why don't we very simply invite uh, us who we normally talk to over the phone? Why don't we invite them up on stage and with the hard questions in front of a live audience? And that was the original inception of TPN. And it's been the same ever since. Yep. And I got to say this, the logistics of logistics started as a blog, 2009, 2010. I wrote a lot of articles, uh, I say blog posts, and I, I differentiate myself. Bloggers can have, you know, more of an opinion. It's more, uh, call entertainment. It doesn't have to have the rigor of what you guys create. So I always like to think there's a big difference between a blogger and a journalist. But as a blogger, I like to have a little basis in fact. So always you notice when you're doing that, what are the very best 
papers, one of the very best resources. And JOC, much of it's behind a paywall. But the stuff I could get my grubby hands on was always the best stuff. If you wanted to link back to something, you want to link back to JOC because they have the complete industry covered. And bloggers are bloggers. They don't they don't have that. And I think a lot of times when I see other publications, I won't name names, but it's one step above blogging. You guys don't do that. <laughs> well, well, Joe, the one, the one thing that I would say is that also one of the things that has not changed as, as the Journal of Commerce has segued from a print daily into a online product is we have always insisted on a subscription for our editorial content. So what that means is that the editorial team, and I'm one of them, I'm a journalist alongside the editorial team, and I'm writing regularly, even though I lead the business. It means that we have to hold our, ourselves accountable to a, a paying audience. A higher bar. <laughs> Bar is set high. And so we watch our renewal rates very closely and we, we have very strong renewal rates. Thankfully, when you are writing for a paying audience, there's quite a lot that's asked of you in terms of making that extra phone call, finding that extra data set, building relationship with the key players in the market who matter. And when it comes to programming TPM or, or some of our other events, it actually makes it easy because we already know everyone. Right. It's a funny thing because in this day and age when journalism became so political and so biased, but I remember a friend of mine was pointing out to me. He goes, you know, this, he went to school for it. And he said, he goes, it's weird to read stuff like in top newspapers where they, the whole story is based on an unnamed source or sources say, and he goes, those are things we wouldn't have done so long ago. And he says, now it became just normal. And he goes, and when top magazines do it, top newspapers do it, the rest of us just follow suit and say, well, I'm, I'm quoting a reliable newspaper. And then he goes, how reliable is it now? He goes, because, and I heard somebody else say this. I thought it was shocking. Local guy, Charlie Leduff here in Detroit. He's a best-selling author though. He said, you know, with the newspapers as circulation went down, he said there was less and less money. They had more and more challenges financially. And he said, as a journalist, he goes, in the past, he goes, you would have somebody walk into the office with a disc and maybe a printed out article. And this says, here's the sources. All you have to do is put it in your own words or just publish it as is. And he goes, every self-respecting journalist would have said, screw you. That's not how we do business here. And he goes, but now it's like, well, that's a free article. Articles are expensive. Research is expensive. Eh, this fits our particular slant. Go ahead and publish it. And it could be written by an industry insider or a union or a political action group. And I was like, oh my God, we've gotten to a weird place. I know you go, you're lucky you don't have to write about politics, but it seems to seep in there. Well, you know, ultimately the question really is, especially if you are demanding that that readers pay you for, for what they read, is they're only going to pay you if they trust you. And, and if they actually know that when you say that sources said this, that actually sources did say that, even if you're quoting them, or if you quote a, an unnamed source that you actually spoke to that person, or if you are trying to put a story together that you are bringing in multiple different perspectives and that you are being fair and balanced, you're exercising judgment. And only if you do those things, rolls up to somebody says, okay, yeah, you know, I trust that these people are actually put real information in front of me. Then only then will you be lucky enough to possibly convince them to pay you a subscription. Yeah, I agree. Business people are going to have to be that was the boss going to say, give me both sides of, give me the pros and the cons. I think a lot of people, the cheat code that I think other journalists have is they say, well, my, my audience wants to believe this. Therefore, I'll write about it and they'll be happy and they'll trust me because they like it. Not so easy when you're the JOC. <laughs> so you guys are part of S&P. So explain that. The Journal of Commerce has been through a number of owners since I've been associated with it. We've been private equity. We've been owned by event companies. We went back into private equity. And then in 2014, acquired into a company called IHS. Don't 
ask me what that stands for. I don't actually know, but it was, you know, sort of a company based on, 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 on data analysis and analytic tools based on underlying data sets, including in the maritime industry. And IHS merged with a, with a company that did similar type of work in the financial industry, kind of the pipes and the, and the data behind, behind financial information. And that became IHS market. And then, and then uh, about a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago, IHS market merged with S&P Global, S&P Global being the famous uh, rating agency, the indices, and, and a host of other- Like market intelligence. Yeah, a lot, a lot. Which is what you guys are always doing. Yeah, so we fit in, you know, we feel that we, Joe, we fit in hand in glove into this company. It's a very strong name, a core information business. We're an information business at the at the heart and soul of what we do. So we're, we're pretty happy to be to be part of this company. It's like a real strategic fit where if you're a part of a private equity business, you, you know, you're not really sure if there's a strategic fit. The only strategy really is to, you know, incre- increase the value enough so that they can sell you to the, ne- the next owner. And, and that's definitely not the case here. Excellent, excellent. So let's switch gears and talk a little bit about TPM. So give me some highlights. Well, let's start. How many people go to this thing and where are they from? It was a record year. So there were north of uh, 3,500 attendees never seen before. Whoa. That was terrific. There were more shipper companies, what, what S&P calls non-financial corporates. These are retailers, manufacturing companies, agribusiness, chemical companies, forestry. I mean, you you name it, who are, you know, who are shipping their goods, who are running essentially national supply chains. Uh, using ocean container shipping. So we had uh, north of 500 of those companies were represented. So that's 500 shippers. I can tell you this, most logistics media, including the logistics of logistics, is people who are in the business. So they are the ones saying, whoa, Peter knows 500 shippers. <laughs> so, and those are big shippers. Yeah. And actually that's, Joe, you know, that's the number of companies. And so the, the number of actual shipper individuals was, uh, you know, over double that. You know, we've always in the Journal of Commerce, and this goes way back to the daily newspaper Days, many, many decades, even even further than that, actually. The editorial team of Journal of Commerce has always addressed itself to the cargo, not to the industry. And so over time, we have built relationships and built trust with, with cargo owners, essentially, you know, sort of modern day logistics teams. You know, they recognize content that is, uh, number one, independent and, and sort of authoritative and data-driven, and also, number two, directed at them for their benefit. And that's why, you know, thankfully over time, I mean, we've built a very large number of, you know, you know shippers or BCOs or corporates, you know, sort of names are interchangeable uh, to attend uh, TPM. What are they hoping to gain when they go to TPM? What are they learning? What are, is it connections or what? Uh, yeah, it's really it's really two things. A program, like I said, stems and directly emerges out of our journalism is a totally independent program. And so there's no, I mean, we signed, I don't know, something like 130 sponsorship agreements and, and not one of those sponsorship agreements results in somebody being a speaker. Like, you know, if you, you sponsor certain conferences, You'll absolutely get on the program. That'll be that'll be part of what they agree as part of your sponsorship. In our case, we do have sponsors who are on the program, but it's not because they're sponsors; it's because the the, the editorial team. That's a fine line, isn't it? But it's true. You know, when you have a very strong journalistic and, and editorial culture, the DNA of, of that culture and the continuity of the editorial team goes back to the 1800s. It's actually a very strong ethos and culture within our organization that you know that we take you know editorial independence very very seriously. And S and Global would demand nothing less of us because you know they they are not yeah a, they're an intelligence company it's an information company that's how they generate their business so number one the and that's really just a prelude Joe to say that that when the shippers come to PPM they know that the content that they're getting is going to be independent and 
and it means that that they are going to be there and they're going to hear loud and clear what independent analysts say about the market. The TPM has always, right from the beginning in 2001, been timed to the, the beginning of the annual Asia to North America contract negotiating cycle. So many of the contracts, not all of them, but many of them renew on May 1. So early, you know, late February, early March, right. you know, sort of this time of year, the market, the, the participants in the market are trying to understand what the dynamics of the market are this year. Is it more or less? <laughs> am I going to be paying more? Am I going to be paying less? Is capacity going to be tight? What is the possibility for port disruption? What is the possibility for, you know, you know, sort of supply chain upheaval? What's what's the state of play on, you know, things like longshore labor negotiations, anything that could impact flow of containerized goods and, and, and containerized supply chains. So they're really coming to get a very good handle on what the year looks like ahead in, in all of these areas. And number two, you know, those sort of discussions that are taking place on the panel, sort of thought leadership, analysts discussion, keynote speeches and so forth, in a way kind of sets the table for what has become a, a very extensive networking opportunity for everyone that attends. So, you know, people are doing, you know, literally uh, dozens upon dozens of meetings over the time. And so they're, they're, you know, basically talking with existing vendors, interviewing new vendors, talking about ideas. Is, how can you do things differently? Trying to kind of, you know, be able to be in a position for the year ahead to, you know, essentially be able to meet their business objectives that, you know, you know, can be facilitated by, you know, smooth, hopefully ocean container supply chains. Yep. Yep. So you mentioned that we have contract season coming up here, May 1, a lot of those. Now, am I right to say there's two kind of two different prices with ocean freight? Doesn't it change depending on the time of year? Isn't there like two rates that they use? Well, there's uh, there's contract rates and there's spot rates. So the contract right. rate theoretically is the rate that you lock in for the period of of, of a full year. But but what what but but one of the things that we've learned um, over the past couple of years, we kind of knew it before, was that there really is is no such thing as a locked in contract rate. You'd think, why is that? I, I put my name to a contract. I, I sign it. The contract has legal terms and conditions. It's been extensively vetted by attorneys. Every other contract that I sign for my business, uh, I'm obligated to to deliver as per the terms of that contract. And so that is not always the case because what happens in the in the ocean world is that if the if the rates go way down after the contract is signed. The sign, you're going to have shippers who are going to approach carriers and say, you know what, I need a little bit of relief. The spot rate has fallen well below the contract rate. You know, I need some support. And the carriers uh, are typically in a mood to negotiate. What happens if the rates go way up? We see that much less frequently. But when rates go way up, you know what, it's going to be the carriers who are going to say, come back to the shippers and say, okay, um, actually, I'm going to hold you to very specific uh, space allocations. Um, I'm going to charge. I'm going to impose additional surcharges on you. Of course, shippers don't like that at all. Nobody likes to be surprised in terms of how much more you were going to pay versus what you anticipated. But but the the, the underlying market exerts a powerful influence on on the contract market. Yeah, and I've I've had people say this before on my podcast. And I think it's very interesting. Is I agree with you when when you say wait we have a contract rate. What do you mean? The rates are going up, but there's another side of it, which is that if you're the steamship operator and um, Joe and Peter say, yep, we're going to, we're going to give you 20 containers every month. And the reason we said that is because we think we're going to get a better rate. And then we only actually have 18, maybe 16. And 
they're trying to fill a boat. And so they don't want to, they don't want to oversell the boat. They want to, they want to be dead on. And if we don't hold up our end of the bargain with the amount of freight that they're supposed to have, they're in a trick bag. And I think this is the challenge we have is, and we, by the way, it's the same with over the road. I tell you an enormous volume, so I get a good rate and then I don't live up to the volume. And at some point you say, Hey, what gives rates are going to change. But I think also, and let me speak to this during COVID, we heard about these container shipping containers that's going sky high, the cost to move that to Asia or, or back to from Asia. And Somebody was at Jason Miller from Michigan State was on my podcast, and he said, "He goes, he goes, Joe. That's not everything. He goes, those are the those are all on the spot market for the most part." And he says, "If you're Home Depot or your Target or you know companies like that that do an enormous amount of business, they have contracted rates that are pretty much going to protect them from too much of that. It's this. It's the extra. It's the." the marginal <laughs> containers that we want, right? Yeah, yeah, no, no, for sure. And 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 one of the things that that all of this, you know, all this give and take that you see, and you're absolutely right, Joe, it's you know, this type of, you know, in other words, ongoing kind of ne- negotiating environment is is not limited to o- the ocean space at all. It's, it appears in trucking, it appears in 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 other modes, even including air freight. But what's interesting is that what really enables these business relationships to uh, to navigate and to survive the ups and downs of the of the market are are personal relationships, and yes. and, and one of the things you know our our tagline for TPM is relationships matter, and and it, it, we kind of created that right after right after COVID to say that relationships matter. It's not good enough just for us to be on a on a, a Zoom call together. Like like we need to know each other at a deeper level. And only if we can do that, are we able to really carry on um, a, a, a viable, workable business relationship that, 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 that can survive the, you know, the sort of ups and downs of the market. And, and, and that's where I think a lot of the value of TPM is derived is the building of relationships and the maintaining and the renewing of relationships. And, and a, a ton, a lot, a ton of that work is, is taken, is takes place over you know, over a period of, you know, an entire week every year in Long Beach. Right. I've, I've always said, regardless of what business you're in, those personal relationships are kind of the glue, but it's also, it's the grease that keeps everything moving. And, you know, if, if, and, and it's also, if I've, if I have a lot of business with you and we've become friends along the way, I'm just so much less likely to be doing something that's going to screw you over. It's just because I, I, I we're, we've got that relationship, and I think during COVID times we didn't go, we didn't go to conferences. We also didn't have our in person meetings. So I think conferences like TPM are so much more important than they once were to doing business. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. And you know these these opportunities really are uh, you know a really good conference, a really big conference, a really vibrant conference actually becomes uh, makes the the process of of maintaining your relationships and ensuring your relationships are up to date a heck of a lot more efficient because if you can see you know several hundred everybody people, you know <laughs> over the course of a week or three days even you know you, there's no way that you're going to be able to see anywhere nearly that many people if you're if you're you know travel. You'd be a road warrior. Meetings, you know, that kind of thing. 
also, I think we've all realized I can get to California. And if even if I get even if I get bumped from a flight, I can get to California. I can be there. I can be there for five days or whatever it is. And I meet all hundreds of people versus do I want to be on a plane every other week knowing our air travel is not easy right now. <laughs> Maybe it'll get better. But right now you can have a fairly high expectation that you're going to have some problems. <laughs> and so I don't want to be on the road. I'd rather I'd rather go to a conference every once in a while. So we talked a little bit about over 130 sponsors, but again, totally independent program that really with with the idea that you guys are going to keep that journalistic ethos even in your conference. So what were some of the big things that would be some of the key takeaways from the conference? First, start with the economy. Well, you know, the uh, the ground has shifted even since TPM because TPM preceded the SVB collapse. At Silicon Valley Bank, yep. It, it preceded New Republic. It preceded the Credit Suisse uh, being, being bought out. And so, you know, we now have a you know, a banking crisis as of as of as of March twentieth, which is you know on balance uh, negative for for the economy, and negative for the economy means you know negative for for shipping volumes and so forth. So that's a new dynamic that actually was not discussed at TPM. I think that the narrative at TPM on on an economic front was that obviously there's still tremendous uncertainty. The uh, you have contradictory uh, economic indicators. You have you have a very tight labor market still, very low unemployment, but uh, at the same time you have uh, inflation that is that is still high. You have the Fed, which is continuing to show an inclination to raise interest rates. Although you know the banking uh, crisis that we're in, in the midst of uh, will likely change that. There is a sort of you know almost a hope on the part of uh, the the ocean carriers and the and the freight forwarders on the on the sell side of the equation that that the uh, very very weak numbers that we're seeing in terms of ocean containerized volumes right now will recover in in the second half that there will be you know if if retailers are working through the excess inventory of COVID that what will happen is is that they will they will do that and then there will be a you know an indi- uh, there will be a an inventory restocking that will occur in the second half. You know, is that going to happen? Uh, how strong will will it be? It's it's definitely not strong enough, or it doesn't appear to be anywhere nearly strong enough. The prospect of that to really influence much the the contract negotiations, which are much more heavily influenced right now by spot rates that are, you know, to the West Coast are kind of, you know, trolling the 1,000 per 40-foot container level. You know, that's down from a high of 30,000 at the very, very peak high end of the of the market, you know, 20,000 being, you know, a, a, a typical rate. So one twentieth of where the rates were at, at, at the height of COVID. There are a, a lot of importers out there who say, look, I don't care if I'm going to put at risk my supply chain. Because if I, you know, take the lowest rate out there and and capacity is uh, all of a sudden seizes up, well, uh, it's always uh, the lowest rated cargo that's out there that's going to get left on the dock, that's going to get left on the loading dock. And so you would think, right, that after all of the disruption that was seen over the past three years, that 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 the shipping public, if or the cargo owners as a whole, would be uh, very cautious about about not injecting new levels of risk in their supply chain by going for the lowest rate. But what we're told by 
you know, you know, any number of sources who we actually speak to, steamship line sources, freight forwarder sources, is that there are a lot of shippers who are just saying, look, you know, I paid you guys astronomical amounts. Now it's it's payback time and I want the absolute lowest rate. That is not every customer out there by no means. There are several companies, large companies where the logistics teams are like, look, we're going to pay over the spot rate number because that's the only insurance that we could possibly even build into the equation in the event that things go sideways later on this year. And even understanding that that there's no guarantee that that'll happen or not. Yep. So I want to bounce this off you. So the, the largest steamship lines is usually Maersk. And then what's the other one? MSC? Is that the name? Well, 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 MSC has overtaken Maersk as the largest carrier by in term and the only measurement because MSC doesn't release any of their financials. And where are they where are they based at? Geneva. It's it's an Italian family based in Geneva that owns owns MSC. But but in terms of like objective data, it is it is known objectively that they are have the largest uh, fleet deployed. So they're the largest, and Maersk is now the second largest. See, it's funny. I said Maersk, and then you said. Mersk, but I heard something. I saw it online today, and I didn't know. I didn't. It was. I think it was a video. How do you pronounce Mersk or Mersk or whatever? What was the answer? Because I don't even. I, know I don't what know. The I don't know. But anyway, I saw MSC. Maybe it was a few weeks ago. Said we expect a pickup in the second half of the year in the economic pickup. So hopefully that's the case because we are already here. We're talking on March twentieth. So hopefully get to that uh, middle of the year, we see an uptick. I mean, it, 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 it may or may not happen. I mean, if it, if it happens and space tightens up significantly, that's what happened during uh, the, uh, the great uh, uh, post-financial crisis restructuring in, in 2010. All of a sudden, there was no, no more space. Spot rates uh, skyrocketed. Uh, uh, cargo was left on the dock and people were all pissed off. Uh, and so, but, but, but the carriers benefited uh, from that. So this time, if that happens again, the carriers would benefit their, you know, their, their, the rates that they receive would go up, but that would be to the detriment of, of the customers. So, so from our point of view, all we're going to do is report on what happens and try to, you know, you know, you know what I mean? Right. It's like, what's good for one is not necessarily good for somebody else. So, you know, our reporting is always going to try to, you know, go right down the middle. Right. I was talking to Sean Barden from Quale. Do you know him? No, I don't. So he's probably at your conference, but he does this. Uh, it, it, we did a podcast on the the empty container marketplace. How do we get more efficient about getting those containers back to port? How do we keep truck drivers, drayage drivers full, right? If I drive out to uh, two hours outside of LA and drop off a container, I should pick up a container to take back to the port. So he has, he's working with Maersk, or Maersk, or however you say it. And he told me that their data said this year we're 20% fewer imports and 3.3% fewer exports. And I said, oh, well, that, that tracks. So, you know, that's, that's, one, that's one data point, of course. But it's interesting. That's a lot less imported stuff, 20%. Oh yeah, it's a huge disparity in the, in the trade balance and the 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 empty container repositioning problem. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. So describe that problem first. 
Well, I mean, you know, it's a problem, you know, throughout transportation is that any any transportation company is going to try to minimize their uh, empty miles or their empty sea sea miles they're, they're, because that's that's uh, represents only cost to them without revenue. Increasingly, there's an environmental aspect of it because you're 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 moving, uh, you know, creating creating CO2 emissions with, without, uh, you know, any any value uh, because the only thing that's being carried is is, you know, an empty truck or an em- empty container and, and all the technology in the world, frankly, has uh, done very little so far to actually solve this problem. And and it is believed that that a fraction still today of the yeah of, of the available uh, uh, repositioning or matching up opportunities are actually being exploited. Yeah, and that's just on the land. Sean's just doing with the land, but he said we are way behind what they're doing in Europe, and we're way behind what they're doing in Asia in terms of doing a good job of keeping the empty miles down. That's over the road here once it lands, but. We are shipping, am I right to say, three quarters or more of the containers that leave our ports are empty when they head back to Asia? It's, I, I, I'm not sure if it's that, that high. I don't, th- I don't think it's that high. But um, the fact of the matter is all you have to do is look at the, uh, the trade balance. The, the United States has a uh, large trade, trade imbalance. We have a trade, we run a trade deficit. We're importing more which, than we're exporting, way, which doesn't really matter. I know politicians act like it matters, but well, I mean, it's 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 a lot of times it's uh, you know it's exploited for 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 political right. benefit, uh, but you know the, the but, but we're we're rich, <laughs> we can't help it. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but you know, but in the, we like stuff. You know, in the in the in the you know day to day logistics world, it means that there's a lot of empty containers right. uh, going going out. And and this was what what created uh, political problems for the for the ocean carriers is that is that when when the rates for imports shot all the way up, it wasn't it was it was empty containers that were going out, which is as they had always done it. But 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 they were ignoring taking exports, loaded exports, which were being left behind, so that the ocean carriers could get the empty containers over to Asia to fill it to fill the, those up with a with a very high paying load. That got the U.S. exporters upset naturally, and they, they, as as is their uh, their pattern, they they take their complaints to uh, to Congress. They're very they're very good at that, and 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 got you know the first law, the first rewrite of U.S. shipping law in in, in nearly a quarter century uh, uh, approved last year. So that was another one of the subjects that we that we talked about at, at at TPM this year. Yep. So one other thing, and I know you guys probably touched on this, but so I want your two cents on the. The shipping steamship liners coming more to the East Coast and fewer to the West Coast. And why is that? And uh, is that still going on? Yes, it's absolutely going on. For for many years, even three decades or more, the percent of import container cargo coming to the West Coast has steadily dropped. It's a long, slow decline over over many many years. The the reason why almost accelerated over the past year was that there's a unresolved uh, longshore labor negotiation that has been going on since last spring on the west coast and and every longshore labor negotiation on the west coast going back to the going back to the 1990s has always been associated with and connected to with port disruption and and delays and uncertainty so so as long as that negotiation is underway and it still is underway now without any resolution many shippers who are very much in a, a risk mitigation mindset after covid 
are saying, look, I'm going to move it over to the East Coast, which actually has as pretty much of a squeaky clean record since the late 1970s of engaging in virtually no labor disruption in, anywhere on the East Coast. There have been a few very, I watch very, a lot of mafia movies, so uh, it always seems like they're always on the East Coast threatening somebody to do something, but that's just the movies. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> not. It's, it's the, mo- the recent history is that there's been very little longshore disruption. So what's interesting to me is we have two separate longshoremen unions, one on the West Coast, one on the East Coast. And what you're saying is the East Coast one it's it's the relationship is going better right now. So companies like the Targets and Home Depot say, you know what, let's go. And they're going through the Panama Canal to get over there. So it takes longer. Uh, two, two ways through the, through, it does take longer through the Panama Canal is one way. The other way is through the Suez. So as the, uh, as the, the uh, location of manufacturing the, the center of gravity sort of shifts from China. I mean, a lot is manufactured in China, but but you, you know you see more and more goods uh, being manufactured in Bangladesh, Myanmar. When it Cambodia, moves to India, India through the Suez Canal, that would go the, the the fastest route into the U.S. is through the Suez, through the Mediterranean, across the Atlantic, and into ports like New York, uh, Virginia, uh, Savannah, Charleston, Jacksonville, Miami. Even Houston, I think, is can part of the East Coast Union, right? Correct. Yes. So, I mean, it doesn't, even though Houston isn't an East Coast place, it is on the Eastern coast of the United States, I guess, in the overall. So do you expect that to continue even after the labor labor problems are solved? Uh, Typically what has happened is that, and, and this would go back many years to earlier longshore labor negotiations on the West Coast, is that a lot of cargo flees the West Coast while the negotiations are underway. And, goes back. and then <laughs> some of it comes back, but not all of it comes back. And that's what's going to happen here. Yeah. So Peter, I know I'm losing you at the top of the hour. So what? when is TPM next year? And do you guys already have the tickets available? No, we, the, 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 um, the registration will open uh, probably in uh, over the summer, June, July. I, I don't think we have a date yet, but we're thinking, you know, probably June-ish. The dates are March 3rd through 6th of 2024. Where do you guys hold that at out there? Uh, it'll be in Long Beach. It's the same location. Which is what, what's the, uh, what's the venue? The venue is the, uh, the Long Beach Convention Center. And there's a, a, a hotel connected to it called the, the Hyatt Regency where we do, where we do oh, nice. programming there to also. Yeah. So I'll, what I'll do is I'll put some links in the show notes so you, people can reach out. And then how do we go about getting a, a subscription to the JOC? Just um, our website, JOC.com. Okay. I mean, if you give me a link, I'll put it in there and uh, people can reach out and talk to you about that. And before you go, I like to interview smart, interesting people like you. Who else should I interview on my podcast? Well, there's there's a lot of really There's really not. There's only about a there's dozen. No yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, I was thinking, you know, maybe um, some, of, some of the regulators actually, you know, for, for many years. I would like that. Very boring agency. Uh, they never, they never really did much. It's the federal Fair, federal maritime commission. Correct. They, they, yeah, they didn't. They were, they were kind of a do nothing agency for for a long time. And uh, we would have never, like over many years at TPM, the the last thought we would ever have would be to invite one of these commissioners onto the uh, onto the program. Why? Just because they're you know you know pretty much irrelevant um, now. They are highly activist. And they're literally changing how the industry is working. Well, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of government sticking their nose in everywhere. But I will say in places like the ports where we have so many things coming together, it's nice to have 
some guardrails put up. And I think I've seen the way the FDA, when they had the revamp for the Food Safety Modernization Act, that I think was handled with really trying to get industry involved. I think the same thing happened with ELD. And I think, correct me if I go astray, I think that's what they're trying to do with some revamping in the ports as to how do we become more competitive? How do we get better? How do we make the world uh, a little smoother? So, yeah, so... so You'll have to connect me with one. You know, it's a very interesting time. So there's a lot of, like those folks would, would surely have a, a lot of interesting things. This is the chairman, Daniel, Daniel Maffei, Rebecca Dye, who really is the, the, the dean of detention and demurrage, Carl Bensel, who came out of the uh, the uh, Senate staff, or Rebecca Dye was, was on the House staff, I believe. So they're very politically uh, astute, you know, kind of know what they're doing and they're activists. Right. We need we need we need some help on the ports all the time. And again, I think we're, I think as we try and tackle the empty miles, and uh, we're going to have to. You know, somebody said on my podcast the other day that shipping container changed everything. When are we going to have another innovation that changes everything? And I was like, that's a good point. That's a very good point. I think we just saw one. Chat GPT. <laughs> yes, you're absolutely right. <laughs> you're right. Yeah, now if we could just get AI to, to drive some boats and load them, we'd be all set. <laughs> well, exactly. Peter, I know you've got a hard stop, so I'll let you go. Thank you so much for taking the time. And I'll put your bio and links in the show notes so people can reach out and talk to you. Great, Joe. Thank you so much. A real pleasure being with you. And I appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much for sharing uh, what you guys did at TPM. And we'll be there next year. You have been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage with leaders in the logistics and supply chain community. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, hit the like button, and leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you listen. Also, please check out our videos on YouTube and connect with us on LinkedIn. We're very big on LinkedIn. And you can also reach us on the logisticsoflogistics.com, our website.